Hi, this is Colin McCallan. Thank you for listening. Please do us a favor and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you. Welcome to Is This Legal? Here are your hosts, attorneys Colleen Callan and Russell Hedges. Hello, everyone. It's Colin McCallan and Russell Hevitz. Hello, hello, hello. You guys probably forgot about us, right? No way. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, Russ and I took a little bit of a summer break, uh, but we are back getting ready for our fall season of Is This Legal? And uh, we're, we can't wait. We, uh, we missed you guys. And today we've got a really special episode. We're actually going to be doing a guest interview with a gentleman by the name of Don Clark Jr., Don is an attorney who uh, is from Chicago, and he somehow found himself uh, representing a death row inmate from Alabama on a capital murder appellate case. Uh, it's a fascinating story, and we can't wait for you guys to hear about it. Uh, and really, as an introduction to this topic, Russ, what we're going to be kind of getting into today is the fact that Criminal defense attorneys sometimes actually have guilty people that they represent from time to time. Not all of our clients are innocent, are they, Russ? Yeah, we we do both. We we represent innocent people too. And and for anyone who doesn't believe it, go back and listen to our uh, DNA exoneration case because right. innocent people exist. But let's let's be let's call a spade a spade, right? I mean, the majority of our clients did something to end up in our office. Right. So, I mean, Russ, why don't we just turn away people once we find out they're guilty? I mean, why do guilty people need a lawyer? I don't understand if they committed the crime. Don't they do the time? Yeah, so that is a nuanced question, and it's not black and white like most people think it is. And there are multiple reasons why every single criminal defendant deserves competent counsel. Now, competent is a key word there. You know, you have to know what you're doing. So here's, here's one answer to that question. One answer to that question is, even if we're defending someone who's guilty, we're, we're not necessarily trying to get them off. And, and right there is where I think a lot of people just immediately think, well, if you're not trying to get them off, what are you trying to do then? <laughs> why, 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 why is someone wasting their money on you? Right. It sounds like that's not much of a defense. Keep going with that, Russ. So there is a wide range of repercussions or penalties that a criminal defendant can face for any given crime. Like, it's not all apples to apples, oranges to oranges. People have extenuating circumstances. The facts of the case might be extenuating. And two people who are convicted of the same crime don't necessarily deserve the same punishment. You know, Russ, I was talking to a guy this morning on the phone uh, who was charged with a pretty serious crime in Colorado. And the range of uh, penalties that he's facing is five to 16 years. So depending on who his judge is, depending on who his prosecutor is, depending on really a number of, of factors <laughs> who, in the case. Who, who his lawyer is. <laughs> we're talking about, okay, the difference between five and 16 years, pretty darn significant. It's massive. And it's even bigger than that, right? Right. Because you can, you can enter in a plea agreement to something that you're not charged with. Exactly. So you can, that's part of plea negotiations. And frankly, if the state and if the country didn't enter into plea negotiations, the criminal justice system would grind to a halt in about half an hour. That's right. 
you know, I, uh, I have a good attorney friend of mine who I think had a really good answer to the question of what does the criminal defense attorney do? Um, his answer to that question is, you know, my job as a criminal defense attorney is to make sure that the prosecutor, that the judge, and that the police did their jobs. You know, and, and, and this is what he's getting at, right? We've all heard the phrase, oh, he got off on a technicality, right? Right. And, and that happens, honestly, it, it happens almost daily. We read about a case. Bill Cosby, we, we just heard about that case in the news where his conviction was overturned because the prosecution relied on tainted evidence in order to convict him. Yeah, and, and let me real quick, if you don't mind, let sure. me just take 30 seconds to um, explain to our listeners what happened on that case. Because I, I don't think a lot of people understand. I think a lot of people saw the headline and they saw Bill Cosby is out. Right. And they were outraged. And they immediately were like, ah, the uh, the justice system which, failed again. Right. Which which is fine. You can you be can outraged. You can feel that way too. Right. Yeah, exactly. You can feel that way. We're not saying way. it was the right outcome, but right. go ahead, Russ. Yeah. So here's what happened for anyone out there. Bill Cosby was sued civilly before he was sued criminally. And they wanted him to come testify in that civil suit. So civil suit means people were looking for money. His, his victims were right. looking for money. And he entered into an agreement with the prosecutor where he would testify in that civil case in exchange that none of his testimony would be used against him in a future criminal proceeding. So that was an agreement he made with the DA. That DA left the office, a new DA came in, and the new DA said, Forget that agreement. Yeah. I'm going to use his testimony and charge him because he assaulted all these women. Now, you can have your own opinion about whether what that DA did was right or wrong, but that was why his conviction got overturned. That is why he is now out is because they used evidence that they were not supposed to use. Right. And, and that is kind of what we're getting here getting at here. I mean, uh, if, if, if a person's rights have been violated, we have this rule called the exclusionary rule that says, look, if your fourth amendment, uh, right to, uh, be free from un uh, unreasonable searches and seizure seizures has been violated. Um, then that evidence is going to get thrown out your fifth amendment, right? If, if you make statements without being properly advised of Miranda, maybe, maybe a, a false or coerced confession right. is, uh, obtained from you. You know, these are ways where you can correct these actions. And, and this is the work of defense attorneys. We're trying to make sure that everyone else is playing fair. Right. If that means ultimately at the end of the day that everybody did their job and our client is guilty, so be it. So that's, be it. That's the way it works. That's the way it's supposed to work. Right. Because you take, you take an example of, let's say there was a coerced confession, but everyone knows that this guy did it, right? He right. did it. Let's just say he did it. Right. So there's a coerced confess, confession. So people say, well, I don't care if it was coerced. He did it. But what happens when the next defendant comes in who didn't do it? Right. Right. Who then has his confession coerced? Exactly. You know, you're you're we're doing things that are protecting innocent people from future police or prosecutorial misconduct. Right. And that has to be a safeguard in our criminal justice system, or else we're in Nazi Germany. Exactly. And 
And so that is largely how uh, certainly Russ and I approach some of our cases. We want to make sure that our clients' rights are protected. We want to make sure that all available defenses to them are put forward. Um, we want we have to make sure we do a good job. I mean, as, as, as you're about to hear from our guest, uh, there's appellate grounds that you can make for having ineffective assistance of counsel. If your attorney is not competent or not doing a good job, how do we know you're going to get treated fairly right. in the system? Right. If you don't have an advocate that, that's, that's properly trained and vetted in criminal law, you know, how, how can we be sure that you're going to be, that your, your rights are going to be protected? And, and it's even, it's even not necessarily like protection against like at a trial, it could be just presenting mitigating information. Like maybe there are some things that the judge and DA should right. know about the circumstances that, that really, really create a need for a lower punishment. That, that's a really good point. A lot of what we do is mitigation. We're, we're not trying to fight the facts of the case. We're not trying to suggest the person didn't uh, commit a crime. Maybe what we want to get into and show the prosecutor or the judges, this is why this happened. Right. Uh, let's look at this person. Let's look at this person's life in a snapshot for a moment. Right. Maybe with this understanding, you're going to be able to understand why the person is here today. Yeah, why they're here and why it's not going to happen again. Exactly. Like here's some steps that they've taken to make sure this doesn't happen again. So all so for anyone out there who like thinks we're worms and we represent just the scum of the earth, we, like we do and we are. Yes, you're you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you're no, you're entitled. Colin is. I'm not. So. <laughs> you're entitled to your opinion, but you know, Russ and I, we enjoy what we do. We're passionate about what we do, and I think this is the perfect time to introduce uh, uh, a man who's going to tell a pretty fascinating story um, that, that gets right into this issue. So uh, let's listen into our interview with Don Clark Jr. and his uh, upcoming book, Summary Judgment. Our guest today is Don Clark. Don is an attorney who began his career as a trial lawyer at one of the biggest firms in Chicago. His clients were mostly corporations, and Don had very little experience in criminal law when he volunteered to represent a death row inmate. At the ripe old age of his early 30s, Don was appointed to represent Tommy Lee Hamilton, who had been convicted of capital murder and was awaiting execution on Alabama's death row. His book, Summary Judgment, is set for release this fall. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Russell. It's good to be with you and Colin. Good to see you, Don. Thanks for joining us. We are very happy to have you. And uh, I can tell our listeners, I have, uh, I have read almost the whole book, and it is a great read. It is extremely interesting. And we're going to let Don right now give everyone just the kind of quick back cover recap of the case. Great. Well, uh, summary judgment is the true story of two Chicago attorneys, one of them being myself and an Alabama nun who volunteered through the American Bar Association's Death Penalty Representation Project to represent the death row inmate in his post-conviction proceedings, in effect, his final appeal, and how we struggled to prove that he was not legally guilty, even though he was not entirely innocent. So, so that is a great start, Don. And, you know, you, you kind of 
raise an interesting point. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, I mean, this is a big case. Were you getting paid for this? No, we were rep- taking on this representation uh, pro bono. Um, while uh, the Supreme Court has held that uh, criminal uh, defendants are entitled to uh, have an attorney pointed for them in their uh, original criminal proceedings and the direct appeals from those proceedings, it is not held that they have a constitutional right to attorneys for post-conviction proceedings or in effect their final appeals. And so you're so, talking about you're talking about the Sixth Amendment, because that guarantees a person the right to counsel, right? It, it does for their uh, original trial and their direct appeals. But for what are in effect habeas corpus proceedings, the Supreme Court has ruled that they are not entitled to appointed counsel. And so there's a great need for lawyers to volunteer to represent those folks on death row for their uh, final opportunity to contest either their conviction or their sentence or both. So here we are. You're in your 30s. This guy's on death row. You're not getting paid pro bono for anyone out there listening who is not up on their Latin. That means essentially for free. So so here's here's Don traveling from Chicago down to Alabama to represent this guy. Now, now, Don, when you represented him, when you first met with him and you learned about the case, did you think he was innocent? He had admitted that he had uh, killed Lehman Wood, the victim, but he had said that it was in the course of self-defense. So while he had not uh, denied that he was responsible for Wood's death, he tried to justify it with a self-defense argument at trial. Uh, We quickly uh, came to the conclusion that uh, that was not the case. Uh, And so uh, we were not pursuing any kind of an innocence or self-defense argument in trying to get him relief, but rather taking a very close look at the legal proceedings and determining whether all the relevant constitutional requirements had been met. That's pretty interesting, Don. And I want to talk about that because I think some of our listeners are familiar uh, with groups like the Innocence Project. Right, which is you know that that's probably one of the foremost uh, foremost groups out there that is uh, exonerating people who who are com- completely wrongfully accused of a crime. It sounds like this is not that type of a case, right, Don? A little bit different. Exactly, and uh, my point of view, and the reason I took the representation on is that it's my firm belief that. The conviction of innocence is not the only possible flaw in a criminal justice system, and that it's as much a defense attorney's responsibility to ensure that constitutional rights are adhered to throughout the proceedings as it is to contest guilt or innocence at trial. And we discovered some very disturbing things. We discovered that law enforcement had knowingly presented perjured testimony during Tommy Hamilton's trial. Uh, We also discovered that his defense attorneys had not met their obligations, one of them suffering from alcoholism at the time, and therefore delegating a great deal of defense responsibilities to an individual who'd only been out of law school for two years. And so so the defense was very deficient. 
So let, let's dig into those a little bit, Don, because you said um, that the state knowingly presented perjured testimony. For anyone out there who doesn't know, what Don is saying right there is someone took the witness stand and lied to help get Tommy convicted, and the state knew he was lying. Exactly. And what had happened is that the state approached a uh, cellmate, someone who is also incarcerated while Tommy was awaiting trial on these capital murder charges. And they told that cellmate that if he testified that Tommy had confessed to the murder and had made uh, statements to him in which he basically uh, said he wasn't ashamed of it. In fact, he was proud of it that they would cut this cellmate loose from his from his sentence, release him early in exchange for that false testimony. Man. And that's what happened. That's that's amazing. And let, let's not forget, too, the landscape where this case is is being held. I mean, this is in Alabama. We're talking about a very conservative jurisdiction, very pro law enforcement. Uh, let's be frank. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a state that uses the death penalty to this day. Um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of going into that culture, not only as, you know, an outsider from Chicago, but just as a man who's, you know, I mean, I would imagine this is an uphill battle you were facing, uh, trying to convince the powers that be that this trial, um, was not, uh, I guess, justifiable or constitutional. Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that the American Bar Association has its death penalty representation project is because it's very difficult to get attorneys to represent these individuals and pursue the legal remedies that are available to them. Lawyers that do so get stigmatized. And if you're a practicing attorney in that jurisdiction, uh, you want to be able to represent other clients and have a good name in the community. And so taking these low paying or no paying representations of condemned individuals is just not something that's popular. So, so let's, let's talk just a little bit about your, your co-counsel, your local co-counsel, because you touched on it. You got a Benedictine nun. Is that right? Yes, Lynn McKenzie. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, we were doing this for free, and I told the ABA it was just essential that I have local counsel to help me. Uh, and uh, they struggled, but they then told me that they had found an attorney willing to help. That was Lynn McKenzie. And then they further told me that's Sister Lynn McKenzie, <laughs> that she's a Benedictine nun. But the Benedictine sisters uh, are very much about uh, service into the community as well as their uh, religious service. And so Lynn was a practicing attorney and she volunteered to help us. And uh, some of the ways that we mitigated the uh, expense undertaken this representation is they provided room and board for us at the convent when we went down to Alabama to do the work we needed to do. That's amazing. amazing. So, so, you know, Colin was talking about this wider view of the state. Who was the AG at the time? Uh, at the very end, the attorney general ended up being uh, <laughs> uh, the individual that became uh, United States attorney general and a former senator from Alabama. And um, he took a very hard line in terms of the case and uh, sought to ensure that the death penalty was carried out uh, against Tommy. 
Um, but at the, in, in the end, we were able to take on him in his office and, uh, get a result that was acceptable for our client. And that was Jeff, Jeff Sessions, just for our listeners benefit, right? Yes. Jeff Sessions was the Alabama attorney general at the time that this case got resolved. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And, and just another notable legal figure was involved in this. Um, who was the judge who you actually argued to on this case, Don? We ended up getting resolution of the case largely in the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals. And the judge that wrote the decision for that court was Sue Bell Cobb. And she went on to become the first female chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. So amazing. So, I mean, you were brushing elbows, Don, with with some pretty powerful people. Uh, powerful people, people that uh, knew what they were doing, uh, had the skill set to uh, uh, advance their point of view and their perspective on these matters very well. And I will say that the judges that we had, including the trial court judge, Ned Michael Suttle, uh, was also very skilled, very informed, and he was very courteous and gave us every opportunity to make our arguments. But at the end of the day, we ended up in the appellate court where we finally got the final result. And you tell us, Don, do you mind putting a spoiler out there for our listeners or or not? If if you mind, we, we that's fine. They can always buy the book and read it. Hopefully they'll buy it anyway. No, I don't mind. Uh, we ended up getting uh, Tommy's conviction and death sentence overturned. Uh, of course, local law enforcement then said that they would simply retry Tommy mm-hmm. and again get him convicted of capital murder and again get him sentenced to death. But we engaged in basically a plea bargain uh, for the ultimate resolution of the case where Tommy agreed to plead guilty to murder as opposed to capital murder. And that allowed him to have the possibility of parole. And we also agreed that he would not become eligible for such parole until he had served uh, a minimum of 14 years in prison. Ultimately, the Alabama uh, Pardon and Parole Board granted him parole after he had served 20 years. Now, Don, let me ask you a question. You know, first of all, Congratulations on that result, because, you know, you, you are arguably saved this man's life. Um, and uh, but I, I got to ask you, I mean, one of the things that we're kind of talking about um, in this episode of our podcast is kind of the role of the criminal defense attorney. You know uh, what what our role is, uh, why we do what we do. And I just want to ask you, I mean, you're talking about uh, getting on a case and representing a convicted murderer, a, a known convicted murderer. For free, um, was there any was there any point where you said to yourself during this representation, "My gosh, what am I doing here?" I mean, this guy—he's he, not innocent. Uh, he had a trial, and and despite the trial's flaws, he was convicted. Uh, did you ever have a moment you're like, "Gosh, is, is this really worth it?" Can you talk a little bit about that as your role as a, as his attorney? Sure. Uh, I didn't have a pause about representing uh, Tommy, even though I knew that he had factually done what he was accused of doing. Um, While guilt is largely a factual determination, did an individual uh, commit the acts that he's accused of committing? 
sentencing is quite different. And uh, arguments can be made importantly about what degree of sentence or length of sentence should be imposed apart from the fact that these criminal acts have occurred. Uh, I will admit that uh, I'm not in favor of the death penalty. And so arguing that someone like Tommy Hamilton should not suffer that punishment aligned with my own moral convictions. But Tommy's an individual that had an IQ of 72. I mean, he was borderline intellect for an individual. He was manipulated into committing this crime by an older sister that certainly was uh, much more intelligent and able to control her emotions. And so uh, I felt very comfortable in arguing that, uh, first of all, it was constitutionally impermissible uh, for this conviction to have occurred given the perjury. And it was also inappropriate to impose that sentence when his defense counsel had failed to present any kind of mitigating evidence about his mental health and well-being and his capacity to distinguish right from wrong and control his actions. And I'll tell you, Don, that's something that really struck me in reading the book was how much culpable culpability really was assigned to Janice, his older sister, and how little responsibility she was given by the courts. She, correct me if I'm wrong, she got a 10-year sentence. Is that correct? She got a 10-year sentence. She got paroled after only serving half of that sentence. And one of the distinguishing factors in the two trials is that not only wasn't there perjured testimony presented during Janice's trial, but she was the only defendant that uh, was able to afford an attorney to represent her. She had high caliber defense attorney Don Holt represent her, whereas Tommy and his uh, teenage bride of a wife uh, had uh, appointed counsel. And it was a stark contrast in terms of those trials. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that that exactly aligns with what we've been talking about in this test in this uh, podcast on, um, you know, we we really found the book and the story is so compelling. And we we definitely encourage any listeners out there. Uh, Don, why don't you go ahead and let us know when the drop date is and how they can how how they how can they order their own copy of summary judgment? Absolutely. Summary Judgment's launch will be on September 7. But if you want to get access to the book as soon as possible, you can pre-order it now by going to Amazon.com. It's going to be available in both uh, paperback, hardback, and also an audiobook. Uh, so whatever your preferred format is, you can pre-order right now. Uh, or you can wait until the launch, which will be on September 7. And this is your first book, right, Don? It is my first book. Uh, I was motivated in part to uh, record not only what's an interesting story that I think has an important message, but also to record a little bit of uh, what I did during my career so that uh, my grandchildren would have a record of that. Well, that's awesome. And I'll tell you what, Don, I think they're going to be uh, mighty proud when they read about your work in this case. Uh, we really appreciate your work. I'm sure Tommy Hamilton really appreciates your work. 
Um, so, uh, we, we absolutely appreciate you being a guest on our podcast. We encourage our listeners to check out summary judgment. You can pre-order it, uh, right now, get yourself a copy and dive in. It is fascinating. Thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, both you guys having me on your program. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Wish you the best of luck with the book. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Don Clark, ladies and gentlemen, what an impressive guy. Yeah, very inspirational. But now, Colin, I think it is time for what everyone has been waiting Probably for. all summer long. Probably, yeah, it's been, they've been waiting for months for this. So it is time for... the dumb criminal of the week. You guys thought we forgot about this segment, didn't you? We wouldn't do you dirty like that. <laughs> no, we would not. Uh, so uh, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a nice one. Um, Russ, if uh, there was one state in the United <laughs> States where you think this particular case might come from, do you, can you hazard a guess? <laughs> if, if I had to go out on a limb, I'm going to say, Florida? You would be <laughs> correct. <laughs> we are going to talk about a, a Florida man who was accused of stealing an alligator from a mini golf business, beating and stomping it and attempting oh. to throw it onto the roof of what? a liquor store. Uh, I have so many questions already. <laughs> For, can I just say that might have been the best sentence I've ever <laughs> uttered in my life. <laughs> we should remix that. <laughs> So let's tell you a little bit about William Hodge. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, he uh, so some police officers were um, called to a disturbance <laughs> outside of a liquor store at around 3 a.m. Uh, and uh, they found a guy named William Hodge, who was happy to volunteer information about his evening. Uh, he indicated that he uh, jumped over a fence where there was an alligator enclosure in a miniature golf course. All right, hey, so wait, let's let's pause. <laughs> should, should break it down. Let's let's pause here for a minute. <laughs> You're telling me like miniature golf course where like families go and bring their small children right. for, for clean fun has an alligator enclosure. I mean, don't you think it adds to the attraction? I mean, it adds the excitement. I, I sure. wonder if it was part of like one of the holes, like you had to like put through the alligator's mouth or something like that or chip it off his back. Maybe I don't know. to get from one hole to the other. It's, it's like that old Bond movie. Where, I forget which one it was, but I think oh, uh, more. Live and let die. Yeah, okay. Roger more when yeah, he right. runs across, right. oh, yeah, runs across the alligators yeah. we've seen that a million times right <laughs> uh so um you know let's get back to the story here so i we don't know the answer as to why there's an alligator in a miniature, miniature golf course great great question because it's florida <laughs> exactly and uh the, the, the officers were further confused when they asked well what are you doing uh trying to throw an alligator in the air over a fence onto this liquor store um and four four words were his response russ uh i was teaching it a lesson <laughs> That's Hodge. actually six words, but okay. <laughs> it's still funny. Uh, Hodge was charged with animal cruelty, possession, and injury of an alligator, unarmed burglary of an occupied <laughs> dwelling, petty theft, and criminal mischief. But you gotta, you gotta keep those alligators in line, Colin. I mean, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. He deserved it, clearly. I mean, he, he, just, he got what was coming to him, probably, teaching it a lesson. Probably nipping at him. <laughs> 
So yeah, um, I'm, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, info on the outcome oh, of those criminal oh. ca- charges. But man, what a fun trial that but must have been! That, and do you think the alligator was called as a witness? Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's the victim of the crime. Do you think that they actually? Like, the, do you think the DA called him and say, "Hey, uh, Mr. Alligator, what, what, what would you like to see happen in this case? We'd like your input." <laughs> I can just picture him sitting in there in a giant aquarium. <laughs> this is the alligator in question, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not picturing that. I'm picturing a, a, a alligator in a miniature golf course. I, I mean, with, oh, uh, wow. I mean, that that is <sighs> tremendous. Okay, so obviously we have a job to do now. Um, we have to rate uh, one out of five is our knucklehead scale. To, uh, to those new listeners to, out there, to, we to, have to rate how how stupid is this? How many knuckleheads does William Hodge get in I, this case? I feel like I need more information. Like, do we know how the police got called? Um, I'm curious about the size of the alligator. They were well, called sure. for a disturbance. I mean, was okay, this a baby so, alligator? So was someone, this a full blown uh, like you know Everglades guy? <laughs> was this an eight footer? <laughs> <laughs> was he swinging it by the tail? I feel Fred like Flintstone style. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> There's, there's a lot we don't know, but I feel like we can still hazard a knucklehead rating. Let's hear yours, Russ. All right. So I'm, I'm going to give him a, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give him a 3.5. Like, I feel like. Stingy, allig- man. Stingy. Well, well, the alligator probably did need to learn a lesson. <laughs> so, so, I mean. So, so that if you're representing, that's your defense. Yeah. Look, he's right. I mean, the, the alligator. alligator had it coming to him. I mean, come on. Um, I can only go five on this, Russ. Yeah. Uh, just like I said, it was pretty much the best sentence I've ever gotten to recite in terms of uh, describing what happened in this case. Uh, Colin, throwing I think, the fact that it's a Florida man. Um, I, I think I think everyone out there, including me, wants to hear that sentence again. <laughs> Yes. Uh, okay. can, can, can you do that? I can do that if you give me a second. Yes. A Florida man is accused of stealing an alligator from a mini golf business, beating <laughs> it and stomping it, and attempting to throw it on the roof of a liquor store. That is the coolest sentence that has ever been uttered oh, on the planet. ridiculous. Well, presumably the alligator was okay. Uh, let's just assume so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. For for purposes of this, the alligator was fine, made a full recovery. Yeah. And I'm going to also assume that he went to jail. <laughs> Where he belongs. Uh, all right, folks. Well, that'll do it for us. We hope you enjoyed that. And uh, we've got more episodes coming down the pike for you this fall. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Is This Legal Pod. If you uh, have some feedback, if you have any questions, if you got an idea for a new podcast uh, topic, give us a call. Shoot, if anybody does that anymore, or find us on social media. Look us up in the yellow pages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. From a payphone. <laughs> All right, folks, we'll see you later. You've been listening to 